Welcome to Flippening, the first and original podcast for full-time, professional, and institutional crypto investors. I'm your host, Clay Collins. Each week, we discuss the cryptocurrency economy, new investment strategies for maximizing returns, and stories from the front lines of financial disruption. Go to Flippening.com to join our newsletter for cryptocurrency investors and find out just why this podcast is called Flippening. Clay Collins is the CEO of Nomics. All opinions expressed by Clay and podcast guests are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Nomics or any other company. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon as the basis for investment decisions. My guest today is Atit Alawalia, and this is part one of my conversation with him. Atit is a managing director at CoVenture Crypto. Prior to CoVenture, Atit was a macro credit trader at Barclays, a macro portfolio manager at Blue Crest Capital, and a credit index trader at Goldman Sachs. Atit is a trader's trader and a quantitative investor through and through. He's also one of the most disciplined thinkers in our space. I recently heard a few longtime crypto trader friends talk about backing away from active trading and moving to more of a buy and hold strategy as the real pros enter this space. When they were referring to real pros, they were referring to people like Atit. Atit lives and breathes his quantitative models and trains like a professional athlete. Folks, this is who you're up against. I should note that the one singular theme driving through this entire conversation is encapsulated by the phrase Atit repeats over and over again, quote, it's all just a number on the screen. Atit's entry into this space is indicative of an industry that's evolving past offering basic exposure to investors to an industry offering investors the ability to allocate capital behind particular pure play strategies. In part one of my conversation with Atit, we discuss, one, how his investment research during the Cyprus bailout led him to Bitcoin. Two, why Atit is, in his words, in the business of being good at being wrong. Three, the role that solo sports have played in his mindset as a trader. Four, why Atit's hopeful that the SEC will regulate the space and provide clear guidance. Five, the values of quantitative trading and why whatever idea you have must be quantified. We also talk about Atit's issue with the data in this space and discuss how listeners might create a quantitative model based on magazine covers and peak hype. I should note that this podcast prides itself on featuring guests that aren't on the conference circuit, are too busy generating returns for their investors to make time for interviews, or who haven't done podcasts in the past. Atit is no exception. In this, his podcast debut, please enjoy my conversation with Atit Alawalia. Atit, what's the origin story of your involvement in cryptocurrency and crypto asset investing? I was trading global macro at the time in in 2013. So before, to be perfectly frank, I thought it was just some kind of ridiculous video game type situation that had nothing to do with me or trading or markets or anything. But in the Cyprus bailout, I bought a lot of gold. I had some hedges and frankly, none of them worked. And I wanted to figure out why. And by pure fluke, I had a, a variance covariance matrix that I used to look at lead lag relationships, for example. And I had everything, gold, crude, S&P 500, the Dow, the NASDAQ, the top like XYZ stocks that I was into at the time. And as a joke, I had put in Bitcoin in place of DAX because I had Eurostocks and DAX up there. Hey, it's me cutting in here to tell you what the DAX is. The DAX is a market cap weighted blue chip stock market index consisting of 30 major German companies trading on the Frankfurt Stock Exchange. Back to a T. And I'd left it in there. I'd done it several weeks earlier and and when I was carefully going through why I had messed up something that I had historically always made money on, which is like turmoil in the macro markets, 
how could I not make money this time? Like, why was I flat on this trade? And when I went through, I actually saw Bitcoin had a, <laughs> actually had some correlation to the Cypriot crisis where they haircut bank deposits. And I'm like, oh my God, people actually, when times are tough and they have no other option, they will put money into this video game token, no pun intended, and they will actually use it as a vehicle to maintain savings when the government has failed them. And that sparked my curiosity enough to start looking into it. But it really wasn't until I got a, a real detailed look on Bitcoin from one of my buddies who's frankly just magnitude smarter than I am. And he really broke it down for me. And he, he said two words that just blew my mind. He said, cheap trust. And given my background and my history, the notion of trust is so critical in every form of relationship, financial, interpersonal, whatever it is. Like When he said cheap trust, that's when I really got involved, especially on the back of the Cypress bailout. I have this hypothesis that the people who are going to get into crypto assets last are going to be poor people in the middle class in developed countries because they've always been able to rely on their currencies. Whereas in places like Zimbabwe, Venezuela, you know, Cyprus, Argentina, they have distrusted their fiat currencies for a long time and got involved fairly early. Have you seen in general as a macro investor, have you noticed that generally when these fiat currencies collapse, that there is a flight to crypto assets and Bitcoin in particular? Well, definitely. And you can see that like in the Argentina case, the Zimbabwe case, in the Venezuela case, you can see that just on the price chart, if you just look at the lead lag relationship there, that's definitely a viable relationship. And if you actually think about why, I agree with your statement, first of all, I think the middle class in, in developed markets is the last to the party. I'd say there's, I don't know, I think I read four to six stories on Bloomberg every single day about cryptocurrency. And that's obviously a US geared audience on the Bloomberg US site. And only 8% of Americans own Bitcoin. And I think over 90% of them have $500 or less in Bitcoin. But they haven't spread their wings, so to speak, amongst the other cryptocurrencies. They're not really in favor. So the media coverage is disproportionate to what's actually going on under the surface. And I agree with you that it's almost like a lack of knowledge that causes this issue. So it's in the headlines and it's pitched by media as something inherently untrustworthy, which is ironic to the nth degree. But because of that, not very many people are getting in on it. But if they actually went back in time and looked at the US history, we've defaulted twice on our debt in the last 100 years. I mean, look, when Roosevelt basically confiscated gold from people, the, the fine was prison time or $10,000 if an IRS agent wasn't able to march you up to your safety deposit box and confiscate your gold in exchange for US dollars. Now, then six months later, what do they do? They devalue the currency by 50% i.e. you lost 50% of your savings. That is a default, right? However you want to color that. In 1971, when Nixon cuts the US dollar from the gold window because we were bleeding reserves due to a deficit, it's like, look, Europeans, we just don't want to pay you anymore. So we're detached. We're detethered from gold. It's not something we're going to do anymore. That, in effect, is a default as well. And that actually is an interesting segue to a, a, another side point. People talk about cryptocurrency not being a real currency due to the volatility. Well, if you compare the volatility of cryptos to say, the US dollar and gold in the 1970s, once we had detethered from the gold standard. Well, yeah, that's exactly the same kind of volatility you're experiencing now, right? So it's a lack of education on the behalf of developed market middle class investors, which is a deeper issue. Like, look, we don't teach financial savviness in elementary schools or high schools, right? It's only at the college university, sort of the elite level that people can get involved. In. And because we don't do that, people don't see how viable this asset class is, but just how important it is because a lot of 
people in the middle and, and lower classes just have been steadily chipped away at by policies that are in place for the last, call it 30, 40 years. What strikes me about the way that you view the world, or at least how I perceive you viewing the world, is that as a quantitative trader with a background in macro, it's almost like you coexist at two opposite ends of the spectrum. From the macro perspective, you're tracking global trends that are happening, how governments are responding to crises, how the world is changing. And at the same time, you're watching it all happen in a very operationalized way on charts and watching this stuff play out in a very numerical fashion. Do you think that's how you've always been or is that a function of your training? I think that's how I've always been because like, look, since we detached from the gold standard, we're not a commodity-based economy, right? So frankly, it's all just a number on a screen. That's like one of my mottos when it comes to trading. And if I think of it as just a number on the screen, it's not being disrespectful. What it is, is it forces me to look at something objectively and then do scenario analysis that's ridiculous. Clay here. So I mentioned this during the intro, but it's worth stating here again. The idea that it's all just a number on the screen is the central theme driving through this conversation. Listen for the number of times Atit says this. He takes this approach not because he's callous to the real-world implications of the numbers on his screen, but because his approach to investing demands the humility that comes with this perspective. If you want to have some fun and you're listening to this podcast at a party late at night, take a shot every time he says some version of, it's all just a number on the screen. So I'll plan for what if Bitcoin goes to 1,000? What if it goes to 100,000? Having an open mind by saying to myself, it's just a number on the screen. It allows me to open my mind to different scenarios that could play out. And I think, like, look, after 2008, if I had told you, hey, we're going to see S&P 500 rally from 666 to 2800 plus in 10 years, and there will be a three-year period where there's no dip greater than 3.5% in the market, you would have probably laughed at me. I mean, I certainly would have laughed at you if you had posited that theory to me. So it's all just a number on a screen, right? And I just think that the price action tells you everything that you could know, because frankly, there's always someone smarter. There's always someone more well-informed. There's always something in the background you'll never be privy to. And if that's the case, why not just look at the price and see where it's going and respect it? Because unless you're Einstein, you're not able to think on that kind of a level. I'm certainly not. So it's about respecting the price action, respecting what you see in front of you and going on that basis, because my career has been built on being good at being wrong. Right. If you're good at being wrong, then you can change your opinion on a dime. You can go with the facts. You don't have any personal vested interest in being correct in any particular way. You're just trying to figure out which way makes money. And inherently, that's the right way. And so you're constantly course correcting because you're going to be wrong a lot in finance. So that's kind of how I look at it. My grandfather told me that in relationships, especially with my wife, you can be right or you can be happy. And I guess. As a trader, you can be right or you can be rich. It's really true. Like it's, it's just about a never-ending search for what the reality is. And the reality is you're going to be wrong a lot. And the path it takes is never exactly how you think of it in your mind. So I have a product in entrepreneurial background. And one of the people who I most respect is a guy named Ev Williams. So Ev Williams was a founder of Blogger. And then he was a founder of Twitter. And most recently, he's a founder of Medium. And so there's been this very consistent theme throughout his career. It's all been about producing and distributing content and, and creating platforms around that. I find that a lot of investors have sort of similar patterns. So kind of 
taking into consideration all the things that you've done. You know, I see you were a credit index trader at Goldman Sachs. You were a macro portfolio manager at Bluecrest. You were at Barclays, and now you're at CoVenture. What do you think has been kind of the common thread woven through those positions? I always liked solo sports as a kid. I played golf. I ran track. I boxed. So if it's a solo sport, it's easy to kind of get along and see the results and the, the gratification, good or bad, right away, as opposed to relying on a team. And that's as well why I got into trading. Like If I have a good idea, I can get into the ring and I'm with Mike Tyson every day because there's big well-capitalized investors, most likely taking the same or different positions depending on the time of year or depending on the market, et cetera. So I get to go in and I get to box with Mike Tyson or play ball with Michael Jordan every single day. And that's a gift. That's why it's one of the best careers outside of playing sports that I could think of. And the common theme that I started to realize is if you don't want to get knocked out by Mike Tyson, if you're me, you have to quantify your results. You have to quantify the upside, the downside of your ideas. You have to have a clear log of why you're doing what you're doing and then codify it so that you can see, well, in history, I've seen this trade play out 120 times. It's got a max drawdown of X, a max run up of Y. And that way, when I'm looking at it in the heat of the moment, when I'm in battle, I'm not going to make a silly decision thinking like, oh, I better cut this. It's down four and a half percent. Well, you know, I do know based on looking at the numbers from the past, it can go down as far as 8% against me. I also know that, you know, the top 15 trades made 90% of the return. Look at Bitcoin in the last year. Like, you know, the top 13 days made up the lion's share of the returns by an extraordinary magnitude, right? So it's about quantifying it. So in the heat of the moment, I'm just making very calculated, calm decisions and I can stick to my ethos. It's just a number on a screen. If I've codified it, then I can credibly say that. One of the most profound things anyone has said to me about trading and investing came from the conversation we had at the CoVenture LP meeting. And you were speaking about the competitive nature of markets and hiring people to work on your team. And what you articulated to me was sort of this idea that when you are investing, you're competing against everyone else who's participating in that market. There is no little league, right? There's no farm teams, right? Everyone is playing against the best people operating in that market. And so when you go to hire, you need to hire people who can operate at that level. Can you expound a little bit on that idea for me? Because it really brought a lot into view for me. It's an interesting thing that a lot of people think of work-life balance. And obviously, we all do to some degree or another. But for me, it's I just want people around me that view this as a hobby. And if it's a hobby, for something to be a hobby, it has to breach a threshold in your mind of being so fun that you're going to dedicate spare mindshare to it. And then it ends up becoming the lion's share of whatever you're focused on. So if you view it as a hobby, you're not thinking like, oh man, I have to get in again. I can't believe the weekend's over. I'm going to have to work till 9 p.m. If you're really in it and it's your passion, then you're going to go after it like guns blazing. You're going to be relentless like an attack dog. So the kind of people that I like working with, and one of the things that drew me to CoVenture in the first place, when talking to the partners, it was clear that they were taking some of my calls. I was in London, they were in New York, taking some of my calls when it was like 9 p.m. in New York. They clearly need to get to dinner, but they were so excited talking about this after a full week of work that we were going back and forth, arguing about the merits of a trading strategy or a thought process or value investing, whatever it was, we could argue about it, have like an intelligent, energetic debate. And finding people like that, that view it not as a job, but as I don't know, man, almost like uh, passion so overused, but 
just excited. A vocation. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so people who just are just excited. Because if you're excited, you will do whatever it takes. And you're not thinking of the difficulty. You're not thinking of sort of the problems you might encounter. You're like, problem, got to fix it. This is coming up, need to go there. Someone's saying go left, I'll go left. It's not working. I'm going right now. Let's figure it out. So having people around you like that, it's one of those things. Like if you put me in a room for 30 days, I can come up with a really great strategy on say Cocoa Futures, right? But if I'm in there with another person and he or she is thinking, has the same kind of uh, nerdy desire to figure it out like me, it could take five days. That's obviously, they're arbitrary numbers, but there's a nonlinear exponential brain power that happens when you're in the room with people who view things as an exciting task as opposed to a task or a chore. Interviewing folks in this space has been a really interesting experience and also a challenge. One of the things that this show is trying to accomplish is to provide listeners to a look at a bunch of different ways of seeing this world. And for the most part, the hedge funds and the hedge fund managers that I've spoken to, they don't really have uh, theses or even pure approaches. And that's not a diss on them. I think it speaks more to the reality that the earlier funds in this space were primarily about getting exposure to the asset class versus having a pure quantitative approach or a pure ICO approach or a pure momentum or sentiment-based approach. And what I'm really looking forward to with this interview and why I'm excited to talk to you, one of the many reasons, is that you do bring this kind of pure play, uh, quantitative approach to markets and investing. Do you think that's indicative of the maturity of the space that we're kind of going from just basic exposure to offering investors a range of different options, you know, when it comes to approaches in the space. I don't want to say funds. I think basically the mentality has shifted, right? Because when you go through an exponential move like 2017, you get more eyeballs on the space. And, and therefore, that brings a diversity of views and styles to the space as well. And I think that's critical because, frankly, if you just woke up any day in 2017 and said, you know what, I'm going long, you're a genius now. Well, not right now, but like up until, say, mid-November 2017. So it's about the maturation of the asset class as a whole. And I think it's it's up to each individual, like what suits them emotionally. Like I'll give you an example. You talk about like indicators and what drives me. One of my favorite things is I know how to emotionally hedge myself. So if I'm looking at the S&P and I want to buy S&P 500 contracts, for example, but I know that I'm waiting for it to fall another eight points to go into buy range. If I'm really anxious, I'm like, if it does that, then it's going to fall into this bucket for this strategy. And I think it's a, it's a win. I'm worried that it won't even dip that much. You know, I'll just buy a quarter of the position now. Cause if it takes off, I'm emotionally hedged. If it doesn't, I'll just buy the other three quarters where I'm supposed to and stay disciplined. Like I know me, I know my emotional fabric. Therefore, I can act accordingly to make sure that my mind is as clean and clear as possible going forward so that I manage the risk appropriately and take out as much as I'm supposed to in the traditional asset classes, right? That's one example of one facet of one style. I think other people have their views and thankfully the asset class is getting fleshed out and there's more. We're in a consolidation phase where the hype cycle gets to consolidate and hopefully the tech cycle will catch up to it. And that's going to bring a variety of strategies for whoever wants to get involved and whatever their emotional makeup is, whether they're value people or quantitative people or hyperactive people or 
VC type people. And I think that's a, a testament to the maturation of the space. About half of our audience is, you know, institutional investors and people that come from the traditional financial world and are interested in crypto. But another significant portion of the demographic that listens to this show are people that are native to crypto and because they've held for so long have come into a significant amount of personal wealth and are actually learning about the traditional financial world and about, you know, sophisticated investing strategies perhaps for the first time in their lives. So for that latter group, could you explain how a quantitative investor approaches markets, thinks about trades, and I guess in particular, you know, might approach this crypto space? I speak in one plus one is two kind of very basic first grader language because that's how I process things from an engineering standpoint. It's just easy for me. If I was someone who was just new to finance and getting involved in the space, the number one caution I know that everyone probably already knows this is beware of famous people on TV saying and doing one thing or another. You know, during the European soft crisis, one of the most famous bond investors in the world said that the UK was sitting on a bed of nitroglycerin. And no joke, while he was doing that, his execution desk was selling insurance, so selling CDS protection on that exact country. I'm watching CNBC and hearing this. I'm getting a call from you know someone. I'm passing it to the guy next to me who's trading UK CDS, and I couldn't believe it. And so beware of like all these stories and what can and can't happen. Get a really good IRS tax lawyer and make sure that you're paying your taxes and doing everything you're supposed to do. I think the best way to approach it is just to look at position size and common sense. Like for me, I think that there's maybe a handful of people with 14 PhDs that are qualified to audit every line of code in any different project in the space, and therefore. It behooves the the average investor or early investors to size appropriately because liquidity is king in this space. I mean, if you own like a hundred of something that has 120 units outstanding, congrats, well done. But you really are going to have a problem as soon as you drop one or two units. Everyone's going to know where you stand and where this is headed. So I think it's about maintaining a rational position sizing in a space that's coming up to speed rather quickly. And the other reason for that is you really need to be aware that, you know, I'm hopeful that the SEC will come in and regulate the space. That's something that I'm very passionate about. And I, I really hope happens quickly. It'll add legitimacy to the space. It'll allow big institutions to invest in the space without breaching fiduciary duty. And if you look at something like BlackRock, BlackRock has 6 trillion under AUM. If just one basis point, so one tenth of a percent comes in there, that's 620 million bucks. That's 10% of the space from one company with a big balance sheet. And there's probably 100 out there globally that we could list. If I listed them, you'd be like, oh, yeah, I've heard of them as well. So there's a lot to come into the space. But while you're thinking about it from someone who's held it from, say, an average cost basis in the hundreds, you know, there's no reason it can't go back down there from a gut check on regulation because people overreact both ways, right? You saw it in December, you saw it in January. People are going to overreact. It's going to move any which way it wants to because it is just a number on a screen because we're in the hype cycle and the tech cycle simply hasn't caught up. So hopefully there'll be good regulation that comes out around the space that allows it to really grow and mature even further and build out because I don't think enough people are cognizant of the fact that at 300 plus billion, there's still a non-zero delta that the space looks very different and could be materially smaller in 10 years from now. So it's important that people think about that and size accordingly. And however they want to get up to speed in terms of just traditional finance or where to redeploy assets or how to think about it is really something that they should actively pursue. And then the other thing is, in addition to regulation, there's custody. I think if you see like a top tier 
custody solution for people. That also eliminates a lot of barriers, again, from a fiduciary standpoint for some of these big institutions, but also it reduces the intimidation factor for medium and smaller size investors. And that also liquefies the space. That's what it needs. It needs more liquidity and more regulation. And that's only going to come from custody and frankly, the SEC, SEC and CFTC getting even more involved. And I know that's you know the worst thing in the world you could say to a pure form libertarian crypto person. But at the end of the day, we kind of have to be adults and say, look, these people have to get involved. At the end of the day, this does rest in the hands of some of the more institutionalized regulator type people. It's important that they're involved and they're active in that discussion because it's just going to legitimize the space. And when it's legitimized, there's more money ultimately flowing into the space, which improves the tech and improves it for all of us. Like, And that's the beautiful part about the space. It's not like in traditional finance where people look around and they're jealous and it's a zero-sum game. Like, oh man, Clay made X and that's bad for me because I look a certain way. It's not that. It's like, oh wow, Clay made X? Fantastic. Because that means the rising tide is contributing to everyone having success and people have that viewpoint in the space. So I think we just need to be more more realistic. When I hear that someone made X, it's like when the four-minute mile was broken, it's like, oh, well, I could do that too, right? Yeah, I'm as smart as that guy. That's such a phenomenal point, right? Because then that was the avalanche of everyone started breaking the four-minute mile, right? So that's a great way to put it. And I think people in the crypto space do look at it that way. So I'm just, every time I hear a success story, that it's just more fuel to keep pushing hard. For people that, I guess, are native to crypto listening to this, but don't have much background in investing, how would you describe quantitative investing? Like if you were teaching a class, you know, Quant 101, what would you say during your opening lecture of that class about the topic and about the subject matter? I would say lesson one, it is very arrogant to think that you could pick tops and bottoms. Therefore, whether you believe me or not, I'm going to have you keep a trade journal. And that trade journal, you'll write down what your idea was, why, what your target is, what your stop is, and then you're going to follow it every single day. Just one idea, just one. And I guarantee you, even in the one idea, even if you were right, you'll start to acknowledge the elements of luck. You'll start to acknowledge that I was right for the wrong reason, or I was wrong for XYZ reasons. I didn't even think about the sort of the unknown unknowns. And I think if one person honestly followed just one of their trade ideas, they'd realize that so much of what they thought has nothing to do with the success of the trade. Therefore, whatever idea you have must be quantified. So like I've tested probably a thousand ideas. And frankly, I've got just five of them that have been robust enough to look at on a consistent basis. And that's a testament to A, how wrong I can be, but B, that you need to quantify your ideas before you can say that they have any kind of edge, before you can even have a conversation around robustness. It's a humbling exercise, but ultimately it's extraordinarily profitable. That's really beautiful. And I love how pure that is. How would you say quantitative investing is different from maybe VC style investing, momentum-based investing, and maybe other forms? What do you think is the main differentiator? First of all, quantitative investing can have momentum components. It depends on your strategy, right? Like you can have relval strategy, ARB strategies, momentum strategies, volatility breakout strategies. It can be a number of different things. I think it's different from VC in that VC doesn't have a mark to market. It's just a light switch. It's a binary trade with an X year time horizon. It's going to be a one or a zero. It's that simple. And the beauty of it is you size. That's why the position sizing is so critical. A VC is not going to put 90% of its capital into one company and hope. Right? It's going to spread it around, sort of not shotgun it because that's a little bit crude, but they're going to spread it around. They might sector diversify or within the sector diversify even further and really take a wide swath 
of companies and put them in their portfolio. And you know, if one or two of them pan out, that really pays for 50 or 60 losers. It's actually not that dissimilar to trading. The only difference is we're not looking at binaries, ones and zeros that have no mark to market till the end date. We have to deal with the mark to market every day. And we're not as deeply involved in it because it is a number on a screen. So, you know, if I buy Bitcoin because X reason tells me to, and I know that it's got a 93% edge, which is absurdly high, let's call it 63% edge. Well, then that's why I bought it, right? But like with a VC, you're like, I met the founder. I thought about this. I thought about that. For me, it's like, okay, here's what I've codified. I understand my upside and my downside and liquidity is king. Therefore, even if it's a great idea, if there's no liquidity, I won't do it. Whereas in VC, another difference is you're looking at something knowing it's illiquid and knowing that you won't be able to exit until it's you know reached a certain amount of critical mass. So there are a few similarities and differences, but that Venn diagram, I think it overlaps a lot more than people think, but in a few critical ways, namely mark to market and position size, it can have quite drastic and different psychological and P&L results. So would you say that quantitative investing is about documenting your hypothesis or hypotheses in purely quantitative forms, executing against those hypotheses, either in simulations or with real assets, and then you know measuring the results and then tweaking that process over time with more hypotheses and more data points? I think that's a pretty fair summary. I mean, it's just saying that, look, I want to know the actual numbers. I want just the facts. And over time, I'll monitor it. And look, there's system decay where I might have to change an assumption or change a variable input. But it's having the numbers behind it and saying, here's a look back period. Here's exactly what has happened in the past. And I can then draw comfort from that as opposed to saying, I feel X, Y, Z. Well, if you feel it, then quantify it, right? And the humbling thing is I might feel a hundred strategies that might work. And I'm telling you, Clay, this has worked every single time. Then I quantify it and it's like, and you're like, hey, what happened? I'm like, it doesn't work. And that happens 99 out of a hundred times. So it's about knowing the raw facts. Now, obviously, Historical performance is not indicative of future performance, 100%, obviously, that's the case. But it's about having as much kind of ammo as one could mentally before going into something, realizing that things change. Do you think it's sometimes advantageous to have blinders on, like to actually suppress access to certain types of information because it might distract you and instead focus only on the numbers? Or is that in general a bad strategy? Do you take in all the inputs you possibly can? That's a really good question. There's a bit more nuance to it. So I think that one of our partners, Nikhil, is all over the fundamentals. He can tell you everything about everything relating to a fundamental variable point on any cryptocurrency. So it's good to speak with him because in doing so, I know what is and isn't liquid. I know what is and isn't reliable in terms of looking at a strategy, right? Looking at it from that point, it is important to have information. I mean, the space is evolving so quickly that it's important to just be on top of different developments because that could have an outsized fundamental impact in this space because it is illiquid overall and because we don't have fleshed out regulation just yet. So it is important to have fundamental inputs in the back of your mind so that it can determine position sizing, for example, or it can determine the way you think about things or play in the background. But in terms of the actual quantitative investing itself, that's a numbers game. And that's determined solely by the numbers. I think as an overlay, one would look at some of the bigger picture informational inputs just to make sure that in an illiquid space, one doesn't get silly and treat it like the S&P 500 when it clearly isn't. A lot of investors and hedge funds in this space 
are primarily executing buy and hold strategies. And I know you've got, you're playing with a, a bigger palette, right? Can you walk us through the kinds of trades that you execute? Are you shorting? Are you buying options? I would just love to hear a rundown of the types of trades you'll execute. And then also maybe the types of trades you wish you could execute, but just don't have the infrastructure for yet. I can't actually talk about that. But what I can say is that, you know, as the space gets more liquidity and more players come to the market, hopefully there's ways to both go long and short and cater to every investment style. You've got value investors, you've got momentum investors, you've got people who want to invest in the latest, you know, VC type thing and looking at ICOs. And I just hope for the space that it continues to get fleshed out. I think it will. And I hope that good quality regulation comes in so that we can see the space. I think what we've seen was was a remarkable boom in 2017 that kind of fed on itself. But getting the good regulation in there will allow bigger pockets of capital to come to the space and allow the tech cycle to really expand. Can you not speak to that for like proprietary IP reasons or for regulatory reasons? Regulatory. It's at least a third of my mind is always on that, like just making sure we do everything that one could possibly do by the book. Being squeaky clean. We're not going to get the regulation we want unless that happens. Exactly. Could you tell us a little bit more about the quality of crypto markets right now? One obvious thing is that, you know, the S&P 500 and global equities markets and Forex are more liquid. Are there any other differences in quality from those markets and crypto markets that sort of immediately struck you when you started exploring the space? If you look at ICOs, it's the world's first backwards market where you go public first. (laughs) Yeah, you go public first. Like, okay, so Clay creates a company in the real world. Clay works his heart out. He hires a bunch of employees, maybe raises some private financing. He's working day and night. And 10 years later, he's got products with real metrics and customers behind it. He decides to IPO on the NASDAQ, for example, and he cashes out. And it's a 10, 15 lifelong journey, whatever it is, right? Here, people pitch ideas and they just come to market. And there you have it. The IPOs happen, the ICO. And then there's like hopes and prayers. And it's kind of the late tech cycle kind of mentality that you saw in the late 90s, early 2000s, which is again, why I want good regulation to come to the space because the real dev teams doing real technology work that are actually making an impact and disrupting industries in a specific and productive way, those guys need to get the money. That's something that I'm constantly mindful of. That's one notable difference is the ICO versus IPO. The way that that works in terms of the logic behind it is not wholly there. The flip side to that is like, look, some people that don't have money, there could be, we're allowing the kid in Wichita, Kansas, who's 18, who's a genius that can't afford to go to a Harvard or wherever he needs to get to in order to take the necessary coursework to enhance his genius even further. He has access to capital to build on a project that could end up changing the world in magnificent ways, right? So there is, I'm cognizant of the nuance behind it, but I do firmly believe that we need regulation in the space just because we need the guys like, you know, if he's that good, I'm, I hope to God he finds a way into the right space. But the guys that have dev teams that are doing quality work, like they need to be allowed to really go hard at it and not just be worried that either capital or unnecessary harms coming to the space by a bunch of jokers who are just playing around. The other difference between commodity markets and equity markets is the time period. So, you know, if I want to look at a strategy, I can look back to 1993 when the SPY was created, the ETF, and look at a rich data set. Hey, it's me again, saving you from having to Google stuff while you're driving. If you didn't know, the SPY is an ETF designed to track the S&P 500 stock market index. 
And the beauty of that data set is if Clay looks it up on Yahoo Finance or Teat looks it up on exchanges itself, we will get the exact same data for that lengthy period of time. Here, you know, Bitcoin's 10 years old, but you and I would have to look across, you know, 100 different exchanges now, you know, and the data quality is quite poor. You have to constantly think like there's no regulation around that data. So it's like, you know, what is the actual quality of this data? Are they just interpolating between two price points as opposed to here's what actually traded and it's a non-interpolative data set? Is it, you know, are we looking at legitimate data? Okay, time out. I'm going to do some native advertising for the Nomics API. Atit just mentioned how crappy the data is in this space. Well, that issue is exactly what the Nomics API addresses. The company I co-founded, Nomics, offers squeaky clean and normalized primary source trade data offered through one fast and modern API. Instead of having to integrate with a bunch of exchange APIs of varying quality, you can get everything through one screaming fast fire hose. If you found that you or your developer have to spend too much time cleaning up and maintaining data sets, instead of identifying opportunities, or if you're tired of interpolated data and want raw primary source trades delivered simply and consistently with top-notch support and SLAs, then check us out at nomics.com. Okay, back to the show. The other thing is with ICOs, you have survivorship bias, right? If something went away in July of 2017, you just don't have data on it. So there's differences in the quality of the data. There's differences in how you collect the data, the availability of the data, the sources of the data, and just how people report data who do have the data. So there's so many differences between them. And I think that's getting better, right? It's definitely getting better. But it's just such a massive difference in terms of it's night and day, really. So, so far, the things we have are liquidity, data, custodianship, regulation, this ICO phenomenon. Anything else that comes to mind? I'm thinking about it. But like top of mind, I so badly want security and custody. Those two things resolved. I don't think people understand just how big the real, quote unquote, real traditional finances relative to cryptocurrencies and the fact that this is such a nascent technology. Ignore the 2017 mania. There's so much capital on the sidelines that has a potential to come in just because of the sheer size of the market, but also because we just don't have quality regulation and too many quality custodian formations just as of yet. People hate me for that, by the way. I get so much grief talking about it. And I'm like, guys, I just, I just want this to be legitimized when it's legitimized. Yeah. Like, you know, I'll give you an example. Like in 2006, I joined Goldman and I saw them move people from distressed debt in London. We had like half a person and no one thinking about distressed debt. Well, in 2006, late 2006, 2007. Oh no, here it comes. They moved a ton of guys into distressed debt. They're like, we don't know what's going to happen, when it's going to happen. But we do know this. We do know that everything trades tight. CDS for certain countries are like nine basis points. Like I think Italy was like 16 at 18, which means you could pay for default insurance on Italy for 18 basis points on your notional. That's it. And that blew up to several hundred basis points, even just as recently as like a year ago, right? So it's one of those things where people were so risked up and there's just no risk in the system whatsoever that it was a situation where people were just like, look, we don't know how this happens or what happens, but something has to happen, right? So let's just move a few people there. Same thing in 2000, late 2008, when commodities were getting absolutely obliterated, 2009 kind of time frame. Well, there had been a bubble on the way up, but they then started moving people back. Like some of their smartest people in other areas, they move them into commodities. Like they started moving some really, really terrific people into Europe, like in 2000. 9, 10 kind of time frame because they're like, look, maybe this has 
I'm just speculating, but they have a an uncanny ability to kind of just say like, look, well, this has happened. Okay. So that's going to sort itself out. We know that when there's an issue, there's kind of a rising crest of the wave, then the wave crashes and has to settle. Well, what's the next potential area where you know, different risk metrics are kicking off, but people aren't really noticing that the volatility around those metrics is picking up. So they move people in a very intelligent way. And I don't think it's a Goldman specific thing. It's just, that's where I cut my teeth. That's where I had most experience. And it was a fantastic experience. They're now talking about starting a crypto desk. And I have no insight into that whatsoever. But even the CEO is very public about saying, I'm not going to discount this as an asset class whatsoever. He's very public about talking that there needs to be regulation, sure, but they've also discussed cryptocurrency as an internal product. I would love that. I welcome that with open arms. Legitimize the product further. Let's do it. Be like a big impetus to this rising tide. For some of the beginners listening to this when it comes to quantitative strategies, could you walk us through what exactly a model is? I think we all have like conceptual ideas about what they are, but for someone just getting started, how should someone think about the discipline of creating models? Are they algorithms? Are they a set of constraints? If we want to sort of dip our toe into this strategy, how should we think of models? What concretely is a a model? And how do you execute against that operationally? That's a really good question. It's basically having a set of inputs that give an output and that output is quantified. So you can have an input saying, one of the indicators I like looking is that the magazine covers. So When The Economist has a particular person, they said the return of the dollar. They had George Washington, a really buff caricature of George Washington on there talking about the strength of the US dollar. And that obviously marked the peak of the US dollar within a month. Or you see like Abenomics and they have the head of Japan, Shinzo Abe, with a Superman cape on and his fist forward and it's another character. And that obviously marked the peak there of kind of the advances a couple of years ago. There's always a fancy magazine cover that kind of captures positive sentiment in the public sphere at its height. So you can say, how do I trade that? I always know that they're wrong. Well, you can say, let's do it. Let's pick a subset of The Economist and look at every magazine cover going back 10 years and pick, you know, here's where the hyperbole comes in and I'm going to do the exact opposite. And you can quantify that, say, here's what it is three months before, one month before, the day of, the week after, the one month after, the three months after, the sixth of the year. And you can quantify like how you look at that. So inputs, magazine cover, output, buy or sell trigger, and quantify that buy and sell trigger at different snapshots in time. So that's a very basic way to do it. And look, there's people who do it in the microseconds, more like milliseconds, and that's high frequency guys in the S&P 500 and every futures contract known to man. Then there's more latent strategies. So in the five minutes and above, minutes to daily to weekly, and that's more swing trading. And then there's buy and hold long-term investors. But I think that nowadays, everyone uses some way to quantify it, whether it's a magazine cover and they're doing it on a discretionary or quantifiable basis, or looking at it and saying, you know, every time a Fed governor speaks, I want to buy the dollar against the yen, for example, or the dollar against the Aussie dollar or whatever it might be and quantifying how that moves. So there's different ways to do it. It's with fundamental indicators. And that could be things like current account deficits, budgets, interest rates, exchange rates, and and kind of coming up with a thesis based on fundamentals and where you project things going. And then there's doing it on numbers. So more technicals and not technicals like charting, which is largely self-fulfilling, but numbers that can be quantified like in the price action so every time you know we close above x moving average for example eight times in a row and that being an incredibly basic example there's two ways to look at it so you have to look at time frame and you have to look at input 
in a very broad way, that's kind of a nutshell time frame, input, fundamental or price, and go from there. I like the magazine cover example because that's something that everyone can relate to and potentially build a model off of. So the last interview that I did is with a really smart guy named Ari Nazir from Neural Capital. He talks about how he actually executed a number of trades. He essentially shorted every single crypto asset that appeared on CNBC Fast Money. <laughs> and he was actually like pretty profitable with this. So that's something that's, again, like the magazine cover of that example, like that's really interesting. So that's an example of when you would take a short position. Playing with his example, how would you decide when to liquidate that short position? I guess it could be, you know, whenever it hit a predetermined target based on your analysis, or it could be whenever conditions change. So maybe CNBC starts talking about, oh, it's fallen so far, so fast. You know, there's different ways to do it. I'm not really sure how he looks at it, but he might have quantified like, you know, how much do these things fall? And this is what I think in XYZ. And this is why I'm taking it off here. Or he might just have a different way of doing it. It might just be an arbitrary criteria. It might be quantified. But someone who's kind of in my vein of looking at things, it's going to be quantified. So something potentially that would just be like, hey, we're going to build a model on this podcast would be take a short position when something appears on CNBC Fast Money and sell when your position has appreciated 50%. You could test that, right? You could definitely test that. Yeah. There's a percentage of people that appreciate this. Can you tell us a little bit about operations? What does a day in your life look like? What are your priorities? And what do you find to be the highest ROI activities that you do you know, every day? My day starts between 4.30 and 5.30 in the morning. I invest a lot of time in reading because the space is evolving so quickly. I want to know what's happening in regulation, what's happening in custody. I want to know what's happening in you know, the top 20 currencies and assets. I, I want to know what other intelligent people in the space are thinking and just kind of absorb it in a very brute force manner. And there's lots of good sources for that. I mean, your podcast is a great source for that, for example. And there's a lot of different resources now in the cryptosphere. So it's about getting all that in my brain because I never know where an idea gets a spark from. While I digest all that data, it could be a walk to go get lunch or going to meet a partner in the firm or just someone in the space that's doing something really thoughtful or has a different viewpoint. And it's, you know, you get by reading all that information, your subconscious kind of crunches away at it. And all of a sudden, you've got an idea. But that spark might have developed from something I read at 6am on Wednesday two months ago. For me and my process, that's incredibly important. I think that has an extremely high ROI, even though I can't quantify it in an exact way. The other thing is talking to incredibly intelligent people that I work with. So I'm just kind of blown away at how hard they work, but also their depth of knowledge around the cryptosphere. So I can ask, I feel totally comfortable asking questions that I think might be a little silly for them to even hear given where they're at in their journey of absorbing the cryptosphere. But that's another great place. That's an incredibly high ROI. They can direct me to different resources and, and look at different ways to kind of manage that. And then also, you know, sitting in a room by myself and kind of thinking on the best way to examine the space fundamentally, technically, however it is, that's the lion's share of my day. I do a lot of scenario analysis around, you know, the space where it could go thinking in terms of, you know, it's just a number on a screen. Okay, but what if this happens? Or what if that happens? And doing a lot of scenario analysis, I think is very helpful for me, because then when I see a headline in the space, or, or someone's talking about XYZ project, then it's not, 
like I have to do a deep dive and it's unfathomable. It's, oh, okay, cool. So we can, we can talk about that. Like, let's go off on that tangent and examine it. Yeah. And the rest of the time, it's just building strategies. Let's talk about sort of taking the first part of that, you know, reading and ingesting information. I'd love to get a lay of the land for your information universe. I think there's often very maybe legitimate sources of information, but I think everyone also has sort of this place they go to that, you know, maybe they don't always talk about, but that includes like telegram groups, odd Twitter accounts, you know, various rumor mills. And I'd love to hear about sort of the range of information sources you have and how you think about them. Yeah. So the range of information sources stems from the traditional finance stuff that I just can't quit. Like the Wall Street Journal, the FT, Bloomberg, the basic sources that you think would be where you look for things, because they'll be the first one to report on when Jamie Dimon says XYZ or, or whatever, you know. And a lot of times they actually have good facts around, okay, this is how many ICOs were released this year, or this is how much trade volume happens in XYZ place. There's about 15 different websites that I think have good, thoughtful analysis around it that isn't just some dude pounding his chest about how this is going to you know, revolutionize the world, which I believe, by the way. What are a couple of those? I don't need it repeated. Like I, I get you. I'm with you. You're, you're preaching to the choir. However, I'd really like some facts today. And then there's several blogs and just daily newsletters. I check out about 15 different websites on a daily basis. And then I can't stress enough like just how intelligent different contacts I have in the space, most of whom I work with, can be when it comes to discussing various ideas or them having a source. Or have you checked out this article from this thing that they read that I never even thought of? And they'll just, I just get sent a few dozen articles or thoughts a day. And then, you know, I will follow certain people on Twitter just because they're just thoughtful. And it doesn't have, it's not like they have to be some guy at like the Bill Gross or the, you know, big dogs of the space. Like there's some really thoughtful people with really high level analysis. That's just some guy in Nebraska or some lady in Germany. And I'm just like, okay, cool. I'll take that because you're thinking in a way that is incredibly humbling because I hadn't even considered that or even been on that kind of path before. So I'll, I'll follow them as well. There are telegram groups and, and all that. But frankly, like it gets, there's a lot more noise than signal from those sources. Hey, I'm going to cut in here and chill for our telegram group. You can find it at nomicstelegram.com. It's pretty good. Not a lot of memes. Pretty good signal to noise ratio. Check it out. This is going to sound really bad, but I like the fact that I've got intelligent people around me that kind of filter through that and they like doing that. So then they could just tell me the, the important meat on the bone and I don't have to waste time doing it. So if I want to sit down with like Savneet, we'll have an, like an intelligent conversation or Jeff Williams, if I want to sit down with Nikhil or Ali, like these guys are top level and they cut through all the nonsense. And so it's just easy for me. Could you give us just a few, maybe like two to three diamonds in the rough, like maybe super valuable information sources that are off of most people's radar that you found to be informative? I think the number one place is podcasts. I think people don't realize that there are like 15 different podcasts. And I realize that's kind of a headache to go through them all. But like, look, you walk to get lunch, you walk to your office in some capacity, you're on the subway or you're in the car or wherever, you've got like a good two hours in any given day to kill. So instead of watching like a YouTube video or whatever, you can knock out one or two podcasts. If you listen to it in twice the fast forward rate and then rewind in spots where it's incredibly thoughtful analysis, you can knock out two plus in a day just doing mundane activities. And I do do that. I also think that Bloomberg is actually tremendously underrated just because they'll have short three paragraph articles, but one will have 
quantified something in a certain aspect. It is incredibly intelligent and thoughtful, sort of like Bitcoin transaction volume by country breakdown. You know, like that's thoughtful. It's not going to enter into my day to day, but it's something that I'd like to see and think about because it's going to be the seed for a conversation with someone down the road. And that someone, you know, me and I might be talking at dinner and it's going to be something incredibly thoughtful that you say on the back of me mentioning that that's going to change the way I, I see things. It's going to cause me to see a different angle. I think that people really shouldn't discount someone based on their age or based on their geographical location. This isn't like traditional finance for like, oh, I trade in New York. Or I trade in like, forget that. There are people randomly out there. And if they have thoughtful analysis, I would follow them on Twitter because chances are they have a very good way of looking at things. And you have access now to a stream of information that other people aren't necessarily thinking about. Those would be my two gems, I think. By the way, I did not pay a teat to mention podcasts. <laughs> I'd love to learn a little bit more about your tool stack. Technologists often talk about their tech stack or developers might you know, talk about the range of programming languages that they use to accomplish things. What does your tool stack look like? Are you using Excel? Are you using R? Are you using Python? Can you just walk us through sort of the range of tools that you use to do what you do as a quantitative trader? It's everything from the things that I read and the sources of data that I kind of accumulate and then to the platforms I code on. And I think an undervalued piece of that puzzle is the people I talk to. So I try to make it a point to get out three times a week with people at least three times a week. I was in New York for 30 days and I was out, I think, 28 of those 30 days, including weekends with people in the space, just absorbing everything I could like a garbage disposal. But I think that the stack can't just be like, oh, I program in Python and therefore I have XYZ. You have to be thoughtful because the space is evolving so quickly that you need to have a broader kind of macro overview, not only of the space, but the players in it, the data you know, everything around it, liquidity. My toolkit is really broad, but that, you know, that's also kind of why I work where I work because there's a lot of that Venn diagram has so much overlap and where it doesn't, there's such a uniqueness and skill set that it's just like, cool, instead of spending the next two years figuring out X, I can just talk to so-and-so. And, you know, after 30 minutes, I can have like a very good basic education. And then off I go in my tool stack of information, platforms to program and trade on and, you know, take it from there. So that concludes part one of this interview with Atit. Next week, we'll air part two. In this upcoming episode, we'll play a lightning round game of underrated, overrated, and dig a bit more into Atit's thoughts on regulation. See you next week. That's it for this week. To sign up for our free crypto investing newsletter, listen to other episodes, or get the show notes from this episode, please visit flippening.com. I also invite you to check out the startup that funds this podcast, Nomics, spelled N-O-M-I-C-S, at nomics.com. Finally, if you got value from the show, the biggest thing you can do to help us out is to leave a five-star review with some comments and feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.